millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Was or was? Uh, was. Was. Is it German or? Uh, you know, the, I believe it's. I think it's just English. I think it's English. You know, I think there's a. I saw there's a town called Was uh, somewhere. I don't know where it is, but there is a town called Was. I haven't been. It might have been German at some point, but uh, yeah. I guess if it was German, it would have two A's actually, wouldn't it? Yeah, which a lot of people spell it that. You know, that's the most common misspelling is W-A-A-S. Was. How, how far into your family heritage have you kind of dove? As far back as I can go. But what's interesting is that like we're not, in terms of like blood, there is no, I have no Was. Was is my father's stepdad's name. So he was actually born a different, he was born uh, with the last name Kanzler, which is German. So the was name i you know we're not really we're not blood related he's just like a stepdad that that uh, uh you know ended up giving the my dad and his brother his name i see i see but you know i've i was able to trace the cancellors back to you know 15 german guys named uh josef josef or something like that <laughs> <laughs> i mean it was like josef josef 15 you know and i yeah. went all the way back to one and they all have like 17 kids all named josef or maria and it's just that was, I guess, how you did. Uh, you know, my mom's side, I've tried really hard. I actually did a lot of um, genealogy work last year because I was quite bored. And I did find, uh, I found the manifest of the ship that her, uh, I guess, her grandpa came over on. Wow. And that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I mean, it still doesn't solve the mystery of, I mean, but the problem is my, my you know, my great-grandfather, Boris, was, uh, him and his wife were Jews and, um, you know, turn of the century uh well it was russia then i guess it's ukraine now but it was definitely russia back then so you know i think when they had to leave they had to leave somewhat quickly and i I, there's just nothing you know the records always stop when i get there there's just nothing i can't find a record of them living there i don't know who their parents were i would love to know that though you know 
how did you get to that point originally? Do you do the thing where you kind of send a swab away, or what? What's the? How do you trace it? Uh, you know, there's some of you, you know who's the you know who's absolutely. I've tried all the different websites, genealogy. Genie.com, uh, MyHeritage, and you know who's got the absolute hands down best records of anybody? Who? The Church of Latter Day Saints, Mormons. <laughs> I should have seen it coming. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, like they had information. They had like censuses and they had all kinds of records. And I mean, that's kind of their, I don't want to say that's their bag. I mean, but it's definitely something that, I don't know. I think they'll have a, they have a vested interest in in doing that, you know, because I think, you know, I wondered if I would get converted after giving them my email, but it hasn't happened yet. But I did, (laughs) I did find like a lot of really, really snazzy information about what their life was like on the, you know, upper West side of uh, Manhattan in like 1905, you know, they had borders and I knew the name, I found out the name of the borders that they had. It was pretty interesting. It was fun to think about. And then of course, you know, you go about your, you go on your way, I guess. I feel like before we dive into your music and your kind of work, we have some important business to discuss. Okay. That being the new Riley Walker record and what you think of it. Oh yeah. Oh, I mean, it's, uh, it's, I mean, it's awesome. I, I think, I think he's, I think Riley's cracked something here. I really do. I mean, I'm a fan of all of his records so far, you know, and it's funny because like, uh, I was talking with a friend about this the other day. I mean, the, the reason I got into him and originally was like, oh, like this guy, he's got long hair and his album cover looks like, I don't know, like Veed and Fleece or something like that. Or one of these Nick Drake kind of like superimposed, you know, green field with like a hippie looking dude. And the music was so great. And I was like, oh, and then I remember I started finding his social media and I was like, oh, he's kind of like, there's something else going on here. He's not really that, is he? And then as his music grew, I like really appreciated the kind of post rock influences. But I feel like now what he's embraced is like the prog rock. And that's what's, that's the side of him that I think no one's really seen yet, which is that like, he is a big prog head. And I think people are going to see that. I, I think, I think, honestly, I think the record sounds like, like a Genesis a Fish album. And those are two of my favorite bands. So I'm super stoked about it. I think it's, I think it's his best album yet. I think it's the most Riley album yet. Have you heard it? The the one that, yeah, the one that came out a few days ago, the kind of jam band. Yeah, record. exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, jam, yeah. it's interesting because when I was initially drawn to him a few years back, it was because of his kind of beautiful voice and the kind of profound lyricism. Oh, yeah. And this doesn't yes. have either of that, but it still feels completely him and you still get a complete sense of his personality. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is fascinating. He's, he's such a fascinating artist. I think he's such a, I think he's such a strong writer. He's one of the best, I mean, he's one of the best guitar players I've, I've had the pleasure of seeing live. He's really incredible. He's incredibly talented. Where about did you catch him live? Oh, I've actually seen him a number of times. You know, the first, so, so I first saw him live. He, you know, it's all been in LA, but I saw him, God, it must've been 2018 just at a little club and it was great. And then, you know, I got my, my friend Mark Duplass into his music or we both sort of got into it concurrently. And we had this fantasy of like bringing of like, Oh, what if we could catch Riley on a tour date? And we could actually just have him come play the Duplass brothers office. So we actually made, you know, we, we reached out, we made it happen. He was like opening for uh, Richard Thompson. And when he came through LA, we set up this show. It was like just us and, I mean, we actually got quite a few people there, you know, just friends, but all friends, you know, it was not like an open show. And, and we saw him play in the living room of their, of their office, you know, and it was awesome. And then when he came through on uh, another tour, when he was playing with like a trio and it was really out there, I saw him at a place called Zebulon here. So, I mean, it's, I, 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 he's a, he's a friend, he's a wonderful 
musician. I really try to catch him whenever he comes to town. I mean, if they'll ever be a live show again, I'll, I'll go to it. I imagine the atmosphere when you're in that office, that kind of living room space, and it's just a small collection of people must be something pretty magical. That was a special night. I, I got, you know, I wish, you know, I wish I could go back to that night. I could, I could do that night all over again. It was really something. And he, and he played such a great set. It was just him and it was a solo acoustic set. And it was really, it was really special. And I was really excited and happy to like, sh- sh- you know, to not that he needed, um, not, like he's a big enough artist, but to expose him to people that like didn't know his music was a real joy, you know, and they all really seemed to like it. So it's funny you brought up mark as well because in creep 2 you kind of have that jam band song in a similar kind of well, oh, not, in a, yeah. not in a completely similar vein to his new record but it's got a similar thing going on yeah that was well that was i mean that was just my opportunity to really honor the jam band fan that i once was or maybe once will be i don't know <laughs> i just wanted to make like the most like budget bin fish song i thought that would be really funny like this is a band that like probably wasn't good enough to open for fish you know but would have like really liked that you know <laughs> would have like that would have been like their dream dream gig you know yeah, so highlight. yeah so i mean like I, you know a, a real fish fan could probably detect that there are like i don't know there's at least there's probably direct i, I don't i don't, i'm not saying copyright infringements but there's sort of like homages and references to at least four or five fish songs in that song and that's just how it is you know is that a different process when you're trying to write from that kind of perspective of someone else and putting yourself into another fictional person's shoes? Yeah, no, I mean, that's definitely something, I don't know, I feel like it's something I'm, I don't know, it's something I like to do. It's a position I find myself in a lot. I mean, definitely on like Room 104, that project. I mean, when I worked with Patrick Bryce another time, you know, he asked me for some songs and and like, you know, and, and I ended up coming up with like backstories for all three of the songs. Not that I had to, it just, I don't know, that's just what made sense to me. You know, he wanted the song and rather than just make it like a, some Julian Wallace song, it just, it became something else, you know? And then we collaborated and tried to figure out what label it was from, you know? And like, uh, so I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. I, I guess like it points to like a philosophy that I don't, there's real songs and there's fake songs. And when I think of a real song, that's like a song that somebody wrote for the sole purpose of like writing the song and whether someone else likes it or not is really like not integral to the song itself so it exists you know and then there's like you know you're working on a movie and they're like we really need like a 70s song here we need like a song that sounds like some 70s folk or we need some 80s smooth pop song and like you know for whatever reason maybe they don't have the budget to afford something or they don't want you know they want something original and you know that's it's like a fake song you know and i, I don't mean that in a derogatory way but i i don't like listening to a fake song in a project and i can tell that it's fake like, I really want to feel that it's real. And for me, like, even, you know, that means if, if they need only five seconds of the song, I'm going to, I'm going to do the whole song, you know, because it's got to have the energy that there was like two minutes before this five seconds and another minute after it, or else it just, it just rings it. I don't know. It rings as inauthentic to me. Um, and again, it's more work for me. It's more work for me. It's not like I, you know, but it just, that's how I do it. I don't know. If everything else in the kind of scene and in the picture is, completely authentic though it sticks it like a sore, sore thumb when you put something in like that that feels a little bit false that's right and i want it to be loving i mean even if it's supposed to be making fun of like i mean there's many ways you could sort of make a fake 90s jam band song you know and like i would say most of them would involve sort of taking the piss you know i mean like i think like you know south park has done this a few times and it's definitely geared towards more i mean those guys obviously 
must have they must have some fondness for jam band music because they know enough about it to make a decent parody. But it's it's more about saying that this music is kind of bad. And I'm saying like, yeah, this music has a lot of really silly qualities, but I love it. Uh, I love the music, and I want to make like a loving parody of it. You know, that's all the difference to me. So I, I, I like that's kind of how I approached that song. Was that like I I like went to fish concert in high school you know i was a big i was a big enough fan i when i went to the concert oddly i only went to one concert because i had no idea it was like a hippie thing i wasn't a, i was like a nerd in high school like i just thought they were like a funny i thought they were like a goofy band you know i'm like oh these guys are funny they have a song about like the golgi apparatus and we we're studying that in biology and i got into it and then me and my friend and my girlfriend like loaded into her car and we like drove up you know to like about an hour and a half to go to their show at the fairgrounds and i I was like, you know, I got out of the car and like someone offered me drugs right away. And I was like, what, what's going on? Like, I was like, what's, what's going on here? You know, like I, I just had no clue, you know, it was like 1997 or eight. I don't remember, but it was before like I had any, like, there's no web to sort of like understand what the, I just, I, all I had to go off of was like the records, you know, and I liked them and I thought they were fun. I didn't really know anything about the Grateful Dead or that whole subculture. So that's why I only went to one show. Cause I was like, uh, you know, this is not what I thought it was gonna be it's funny how you have a completely different impression of it that's something that couldn't really happen anymore like the mystery is kind of gone in that way and there's less room for people to imprint what they want it to be or think it It is absolutely it it really is you know exactly probably i mean there's many ways to know exactly what a fish concert is going to be now you could watch one on youtube you know and uh and you'll know like there won't be that same so it's fun when there's surprises, I guess. Anytime there is a little bit of mystery, it can be very fun. It's rare, though. Do you do you ever jam with directors that you're working with or people you're collaborating with? Like play music, you mean? Yeah. I mean, Mark and I jam a lot. I mean, we just we just love jamming. You know, we've written a couple musicals together, so jamming is a big part of our creative process. I'm trying to think if I've jammed with anybody else. I don't know. I'd like to. I mean, I like jamming. Jamming's fun. I don't do it a whole lot, you know? I, I jam with myself. That was something I did a lot in the pandemic was like set all my keyboards up and just kind of like jam like I was like Tangerine Dream or something. <laughs> and that's fun. But I'm kind of a loner, you know. I don't I've been in bands, but but I I, I don't think I would be in another band ever. It's just it's just complicated. It's hard to be in a band. If I could be in a band with like myself, like clone myself and be in a band with that person, I would do that. It's a big commitment being in a band oh i thought you just meant cloning yourself is a big commitment <laughs> that too yeah <laughs> no it's it's true no it's true being in, you know i mean that that's like yeah i mean like i you know i loved being in a band and being in bands was really fun and it definitely felt like a more of a young man's game but once i got married i sort of started to feel like i'm already married to the person i like you know chose to be married to and it feels like i've got this almost other marriage with the band not that it was like you know it wasn't romantic or sexual but it had a similar and it needed attention it needed therapy it just needed so much that i was like i felt like kind of like i didn't have the energy of being in an actual marriage with another person you know i couldn't i felt like I, I couldn't be married to the band anymore i do think that like the really healthy bands that go on for a long time seem to have like a very good way of of, they they work on it it's a relationship that requires work is that healthy for the individual though if you have that kind of really tie to you i don't know i don't know i mean like i've been you know i've been wishing and praying for a new blue nile record for many years and from the sound of it it sounds like that uh you know maybe that was a relationship that made beautiful music but wasn't great for the individual i mean they're just my favorite band of all time they're scottish right they are glasgow i think 
if I recall. They're Glasgow. Yeah, they're yeah, they're Glasgow. Yeah, they're they're wonderful. I love them. But yeah, I mean, like they've put out only four records in you know almost forty years. The last one was two thousand four, and I just get the sense that you know, as much as we think that it just sounds beautiful and emotional, it takes a toll. You know, and it's a, it's it's not something any of them are interested in doing. So, you know, we'll just have to keep waiting or not. <laughs> Could you could you ever do that? You know, only put out like four pieces of work in twenty years, or do you have to constantly be creating stuff and putting things out into the world? I mean, I don't know. My, my like the, the the create my creativity is like so tied to like try, making a living. You know that like I like yeah. I mean, if it was if if I you know if it was up to me and it was just like releasing my own music, yeah. Like I mean, I probably would never do that because I just tinker with it endlessly. So I I relate to those. I mean, my you know my one of my other favorite bands, Gritty Politi. Like again, like they've. Green's been working on a new record, I think, since like 2006, and and he's that same kind of guy. And I loved Scott Walker. I still love Scott Walker. I just I'm still not really come to terms with him being alive anymore. You know, these are all artists that like take a lot of time. You know, they can't. They do. They like you. You know, they. These are artists that put out yeah, like maybe an album a decade at the most, <laughs> maybe less. And I guess that's more like my speed in the sense that I just. I mean, I put out albums with bands because we had to because it was time to put it out <laughs> and there were other people involved, but like, and I've released soundtrack albums because I had to finish the score for the movie because they had to mix it, you know, but in terms of just like making my own music, I'm just endlessly tweeted. It's something I need to work on, honestly, because I would like to be the kind of person that at least puts something out, but yeah, no, I'm, yeah, I, I, I do like to be creating constantly, but in terms of actually putting something out, that's another story. Do you make music that's just for yourself that you won't release to anyone at any point, but kind of fulfills a role in your life? I have a ton of that. I have plenty of that. I have like hours of that music and I record it, you know, I mean, I use the studio as an instrument. I have just hours. I don't know, hundreds of, of pieces of music, maybe a thousand. I don't know. And they're all special to me. And, you know, I think there's that, it's funny you mentioned, there's that fear that like they're special to me and they make me feel a certain way. And there's that fear that like, once you put it out and, maybe just no one will care. You know, I'd love to make, I I like, would like to make music that's either hated or loved. You know, the worst thing you could do is sort of like, eh, it's fine. I'd rather you like, I'd rather my music like made you ill. Like you thought it was the worst thing in the world than just sort of like, it's fine. But I don't tend to make that kind of music. I don't know if anyone's been found my music repulsive. Maybe I should try. (laughs) Yeah. You want to provoke a strong emotional reaction either end just one way or the other yeah yeah not to be wallpaper you know that's kind of like yeah it's fine yeah whatever it just doesn't really warrant uh more than a cursory listen that's like the ultimate diss to me does a piece of film have to do that for you in order for you to compose to no not at all i mean like i i always love to find i don't know i whatever piece of film or tv i get i i just love that's something i really enjoy is finding you know, finding the humanity in it and, and tapping into that and trying to make something that, you know, that feels like that feels like that, you know, I mean, those are my favorite scores are the ones where I really connected with what the characters were maybe not connected with like exactly what the characters were going through, but it's something about it. The emotion behind it was something that I understood that felt like I didn't even need to talk about it. Like, it's not something that I even, it's like, it was almost like another limb, you know, that like making that, like, like, for example, like the Blue Jay score, it almost felt like that was, I I don't remember, like, I never intellectualized it. You know what I mean? It just kind of, because like, that's a movie that just felt like I feel all the time, you know, (laughs) that's just how I feel. (laughs) 
so, but, but that said, like, uh, that's all when, whenever I, if, if I happen to be struggling with a scene or feeling uninspired, I just try to reach into that place, I guess, and try to think about, okay, like what, what part of this can I connect to some way that I feel? Because that's when I tend to make music that seems to work better. Is it easier to do that? Similar to what we were saying earlier with the jam band stuff or we're, we're writing yeah. for Room 104, where you, you know, you come up with a backstory for it. Is it easier to do that with when you completely understand, you know, where a character is coming from? Like you understand their kind of background and the backdrop of them and where they're at at this point in their life? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're talking about like a score piece or like writing a song or something. M- more a score piece, yeah. I don't know. The best ones just kind of happen, you know? The best ones are like, I just see it and I feel it and I, and I do it, you know? I mean, it's kind of why like I feel, it's probably why my scores have not ever, they haven't really evolved into like orchestral scores. Uh, they just haven't, you know, I mean, like, you know, part of it is situational. I just haven't had the opportunity and the projects I work on don't really require that. But it's also like, I seem to be do my best work, or at least what I think is my best work and what people seem to respond to when it's me kind of like feeling my way through something. And as soon as I'm sort of trying to think about instrumentation beyond what I can play, or, you know, thinking about how am I going to get this to somebody who could because I'm an idiot with musical notation, you know, I mean, I know a lot about music, but I, I can't write it out, you know, so then all of a sudden, it's like, now I need to think about, it becomes intellectualized, you know, and that's definitely, that's been a block for me. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a challenge I should try to, to power through, but I do think that that's probably one of the reasons why that hasn't happened, you know, hasn't happened for me, that I've sort of gravitated towards like, the little sort of, I don't know, the, the, the little tiny shadow box universe <laughs> of the kind of music that like that, that I don't want to say it's easy for me to make. Cause that's not like I'm, I like to do things that are easy, but that's the thing that, that feels like it comes straight from wherever, you know, the place that music is made, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's very organic. Yeah, it is organic. And some people would say that my scores are not organic because they're very electronic, but I, I guess I don't, I just don't, I don't agree with that organic, you know? A lot of chemical, a lot of really nasty chemicals are organic too, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Something, you know, you may not want to drink it, but it's organic. Yeah, that's a fair point. (laughs) Is it, I guess as well, the thing with the the films that you composed, you know, you're referencing Blue Jay there, a lot of it is very kind of under the surface, if you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. the kind of energy of it. Is that a similar thing you kind of look to parallel in the score? Are you trying to create attention in a similar way? I guess it really, it really depends what, what the scene wants. I mean, I guess, again, like I've ended up working with and gravitating towards filmmakers who really want, they want like the strength of their writing and direction and performances to kind of speak for it, right? You know, and they don't want, they tend to not, I mean, it's, they tend to not want the music to really push you to feel a certain kind of way, the way that, you know, like it's funny, you go back and watch like an old movie or something and the score is, is really narrating bit by bit how you're supposed to feel as the scene progresses you know and that is uh that is it's not the kind of work that i've been hired for you know it tends to be more that they want things that make you feel sort of get you into the world of the movie or get you into the feeling of the scene so but that said i mean like there's there is like a there's a functionality to it that sometimes people are like you know this this isn't working the way the filmmaker might say to me this isn't working the way i wanted it to work it's not as this or it's not as that and and i i know tricks or like little things i could do to sort of you know make it feel more emotional or make it it's hard to make something more funny with music that's definitely challenging Sometimes people are like can you make the comedy land i was like I, that I, i've i've done it before i just don't know how to explain it because <laughs> it's like i mean looney tunes music makes it more funny you know that like carl stalling stuff that's like 
really off the wall. That's pretty funny, but that's not what they mean. I guess because they both have such a rhythm to it, like the images and the music. That's true. That's true. I mean, sometimes music, it's something what is it, the music, maybe they have temp music in there that is really not funny. Sometimes like, you know, there are certain instruments that are not funny. And so maybe you just pull those back and just have some percussion. And that, that tends to be the funniest, you know, I guess that's why they do that. But I'm you know, it's like <laughs> percussion's funny. There's something inherently absurd about it, I guess. Maybe, yeah, maybe something to do with just letting the images do the work as well when it comes to comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tr- yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's gotta, it's gotta be, but, um, but yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of function. I mean, I, I, I find that like, I guess like I'm really idealizing the process. I mean, I like at the core is like, I'm just trying to feel my way through it, but yeah, there's always, there's always some sort of intellectual pursuit, I guess, of like, oh, like we need to make this feel make the scene feel faster. You know, I, I know how to do that to an extent, you know, or at least make, even if it's not any faster, make it feel a little bit more exciting. Those are all things that, that I can do and that I like to do. At what point in the process do you kind of identify that pursuit at the heart of a scene? Um, I mean, it's usually like when we do the the spotting session, you know, like we'll I'll sit with the director, well, back in the before times, you know, we'd sit in the same room and watch the movie and pause it a lot and talk about what any particular part of the movie needed or what this scene needed. And, you know, and then I would, le- I would, I'd take detailed notes and I'd try to get an idea of what they're looking for, you know, and I just try to give that to them, you know, and that's when I start to get a sense of like what they're, ch- if, if, if I do need to push the needle, you know, where we need to push it to, if it needs to feel more peppy or it needs to feel less peppy. At least those are some things that I can bring into my work. So yeah, I mean, that's usually, I mean, now we do it on Zoom, which is the same thing, really. But I don't know, the temp music is a big part of that, honestly, because like, I think and a lot of composers hate it. I kind of like it because like, I find that anytime like I've spent a lot of time talking about music without actually making any music or hearing any temp music that the directors or editors have chosen, the worse, it's not good. I, I don't know. Like, I feel like, I'll be talking about what I think the music is going to be. And they're talking about what they think the music is going to be. And we feel like we're talking about the same thing. And then you make the music and it like quite possibly could be like nothing like the imagination. So I do think that like, if they want to throw the American beauty score on there and we can at least talk about why that sucks for this scene and we can build off of that. It's so much easier in my opinion. You know what I mean? I love the American beauty score, by the way, I'm not saying I'm not trying to slag it or anything. It just that's a very common piece of town music <laughs> and and but there's a reason it is because it's like really weird it's really weird but also feels really normal like if you actually listen to it it's like quite strange you know yeah can i like the badline score as well oh yeah it's definitely I mean, that's and yeah, it's still it's all in that sort of um idiophone world you know percussive melodic instruments xylophone and marimba and stuff like that there's something i don't know there's something special about those that's the reason you hear them and they're quirky you know <laughs> <laughs> when when you did uh miseducation of cameron post the boards of canada have been tempting right yeah yeah wow that's cool that yeah that's cool that you know that yeah i mean obviously that's like one of those i don't say dream come true situations but i'm a big boards of canada fan and i love the, i mean the sound of their music has got like it's so particular i mean it you know it, it really is the sound of like a really busted old VHS tape or even better your memory of that busted old VHS tape. It's so warbly and kind of fuzzy and it's, it's very nostalgic. And so I was excited by that proposition to sort of create something in that, in that world. And, and to, and to Desiree's credit, I think I was probably at times trying to make the score like more normal. Like I was thinking, Oh, well, like 
I want to just do boards of Canada, but like that, you can't do that. And then she really pushed me. It was like, no, like she really wanted it to be that. And I thought that was really not like, I thought that was really cool. That was awesome. And that's not common. Usually like you kind of have to make it a little more normal. That's usually what people want. So in that case, did the temp music almost illustrate that you were on the same page as opposed to what we're saying other where you'll sometimes kind of figure out where you're flying off each other? Absolutely. And I, like I said, like, I mean, it was temp with boards of Canada. I was like, okay, I hear that and I can, I can do that. And I started doing it. And I think like her, her initial feedback was like that I was making it sound too much like a score. I think like something that, that, that people want sometimes I think is super interesting is they, there's, there's something about the energy of like plopping a song in a scene and the sort of kismet of like, Oh wow. Like you just lay it in starting here. And like, the part where the drums come in like syncs perfectly with this thing. And then this other thing, you know, and it's just magic. It's like, not that you tried to make it happen. And I think that like people like, there's something to that, you know, that you could then craft something that does that, but people sort of want that. Sometimes people really want that feeling that it was just almost an accident that this piece of music works well. Not that like you, you spent time like crafting and timing and measuring. Okay. If I make it, 103.75 beats per minute i can have a cymbal crash on this thing <laughs> and this other thing and i don't have to do a wonky time signature you know there's a different energy to that yeah it's quite a technical approach oh yeah exactly yeah yeah it's technical you know so i think like people i don't know i seem to notice filmmakers really enjoy when the score can still feel kind of um, spontaneous or like accidental and i know that desiree i, I mean i don't think we ever discussed that but when I finally like cracked the code on that and started making stuff that she was really happy with, I think part of what she was happy about was that there was something kind of, I guess for lack of a better word, low key, as we would say <laughs> out here, you know, that there's yeah. something low key that it's not, it's not, it's not try hard, you know, it's like low key, it's laying in the cut and it's like doing its job without like hitting you over the head. And it sounds cool. And there's something cool about that. Cause like, what's, what's, what's the coolest thing? You're not caring, you know, <laughs> like you're like, I'm, I'm cool. Like I'm not like sweating it, you know, and sometimes the music needs to just not be sweating it. That's very LA. It very, very, very Southern California. When, I mean, how long had you been doing the music for on Room 104 when you eventually directed an episode? We did season one and then we did seasons two and three. Actually, those were shot all as a block of 24 episodes. Wow. So at the time, yeah. So, you know, my episode that I, co-wrote with mark and directed was in the second season so I'd, I'd fully scored one whole season at that point basically how did directing that episode impact your understanding of what that show was oh wow that's a really good question i mean i think there's a little bit of a chicken and egg thing i mean i think one of the reasons that like i think one of the reasons i became like a a, a member of the, <laughs> the creative team of that show was that like during the first season, I really became intimately aware of like what a room 104 was. I mean, cause like obviously lots of people came, I mean, Mark knew what it was and other, you know, then like Sid Fleischman and Mel Eslin, they knew what it was, but there was this notion of like, everybody came in and kind of did their thing. And now, like when I was looking at the season as a whole scoring episode after episode, I was like starting to realize, Oh, okay. Like every episode kind of has like this moment, the moment where it all flips on its head or every, like I started to notice this rhythm and like what a room 104 was becoming. And that, that became very helpful. And honestly, in terms of like, uh, so I guess that doesn't answer your question. I mean, then obviously like <laughs> directing, like just honestly made me like even more appreciative of the like incredible 
crew we had. I mean, we just had, uh, I, I don't know if I'll ever be on a set with like warmer, nicer, more supportive people as we had on room 104. And I mean, I was terrified coming in as like a director first time and, you know, they supported me and helped me. And I mean, I, you know, to say I couldn't have done it without them, that's almost an understatement. Interesting. I imagine that composing is more of an isolated thing. Or is it sounds like directing is more of a kind of community approach? 100%. I mean, composing, like, I mean, there are times when, like, uh, a director or somebody will want to sit in with me. I tend to prefer not to do that, not because I don't like having them around, but, like, there is this, like, very delicate time when you're, like, when this, the, when a, when a musical idea is germinating, that even, like, kind of, like, a weird look could kind of, like, point you in a different direction. So I think sometimes it is important to protect that time that creative time you know what i mean like like let that be really gentle and let it be really protected so that there's no sort of let let yourself sort of take it to a certain place before you share it so that said i mean like yeah i've i've certainly done you know 99 percent of my composing work in my career completely alone you know and i like it that way so yeah then being on a set and being so collab i mean collaborative to the max i mean there's no way you could do that by yourself at least not in that situation. You need so many people to help, you know? Yeah, it was really different. You're, you're really right about that. Do you feel like you're using a different side of your brain when you're on the set? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, feels like a mi- it feels like miles away, a whole universe away from like me in my music area, like, you know, getting into like scoring something. It's so different from being on set. It's just, it's night and day. It's, it's so different. And it is a different part of my brain for sure. It's more of a problem. I guess it's more of a problem solving brain. I feel like there's always like something to kind of figure out quickly being like, okay, we need to do this. We're running out of time. How are we going to do that? And I mean, there have been times in composing where I have to think fast and kind of figure it out. But in general, I have time, you know, I have the luxury of time to kind of figure out like what it, what I need to do. You know, it's usually not a race against the clock. Like it is. I mean, when you're directing, it does feel like you're constantly like racing against the end of your day (laughs) (laughs) that's when it becomes like you say useful to have or essential really to have that creative team around you that are there to support you yes absolutely and like i said room 104 really had a special a really special group you know had you been on the set before before you directed had you ever been on a room 104 set yeah i mean interestingly enough i don't think i ever came on the set in season one just i wasn't i don't i wasn't needed but then season two we really started to do more stuff musically so prior to being so well a prior to being on set as a director i got to co-write an episode with janae lamarck who is uh who i'm married to and so we co-wrote an episode that she directed so i got to be on set for that whole experience I think I was also on set for like a very strange day when I had to come and s- help supervise Michael Shannon performing a rap that I had written for him to do as part of an episode. And I feel like there was one, of, I mean, you know, there was just a couple musical moments, but I mean, the time I was meaningfully on set was for the episode Rogue that Janae and I wrote together. Cause I mean, I just, I, I knew I was going to be directing and I also just wanted to be, I mean, to see like something that I wrote all of a sudden become real was like really trippy. So I didn't want to miss a minute of that. But yeah, aside from that, it's like I've come, you know, I've come to set outside of directing quite a bit just to help with any kind of, you know, musical moments. Because a lot of times like I'll do a pre-record, like I'll write the song ahead of time and then come to set to kind of help and make sure if anyone has any questions about it. Michael Shannon didn't have any questions about it because he's like a boss and he just like 
to think about Michael Shannon, like wearing headphones, like learning my rap sort of like rhythmically. I was like, that is really weird. I'm not even a rap. I'm not a rapper, you know, by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. He carries it off with some conviction as well. Yeah. I think he was kind of in character the whole time. I mean, we had a conversation. I think I was talking to, uh, to the, I was talking to like a Russian spy uh, in retrospect. I don't know if I was talking to Michael. (laughs) (laughs) Do you, do you have to ever get yourself into the headspace of a film in that way in order to write for it? Or can you do it from quite an objective kind of thing? Uh, you know, it, it sneaks up on you sometimes, you know, I mean, like, I, it's funny, I worked on a film called Other People that was written and directed by a guy named Chris Kelly, really talented, he's such a funny guy, but this movie was very emotional, uh, you know, it was about like a, a young man who comes back to his hometown of Sacramento to help take care of his dying mother in her last year of life. And uh, Alex, I'm not kidding, this movie had, I'm not joking, four score cues, which is very, not a lot. And I think the longest score cue was maybe 45 seconds. So in terms of how much music there was, I mean, there could, I don't know if I'll ever work on something that has less music than that. But I definitely found myself getting really, really pulled into the world of that movie. I mean, I lost, uh, I lost my mother to cancer uh, when I was 12. And so I definitely had a personal connection to it, you know, but I definitely noticed after, even though like, again, like I wasn't spending super long hours working on it. I found that I was really, really deep in the world of that movie when like, I mean, I think I, you know, obviously from a technical standpoint, I could have just kind of dipped in and done like these four cues that were not very long, but I really, I really got deep into the, and I did realize that I was kind of depressed is the wrong word. I felt sad though. I felt sad. I felt sad working on it. Were you working through some of your own stuff in a way? Probably. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, like this was a movie about a guy losing his mother, like in his twenties. And so, you know, that obviously sort of like made me think a bit about what that would be like, you know, to have that experience. And it made me feel really sad for my experience. It oddly also made me feel sort of grateful for my experience for being sort of like a 12 year old that was a bit like, for lack of a better word, ignorant to some of the the goings on that I would have been more acutely aware of had I been in my 20s or 30s. And I had some gratitude for that, you know, so it, it definitely caused me to reflect my own experience and and i guess that's one of the reasons i connected to the film so much has creating art in that way ever prompted you to self-reflect in a similar vein on other experiences in your life (sighs) yeah absolutely i mean it's like that i feel like i don't know in some ways like it's happened a lot since then i mean it's probably always happened but there's always something i learned from any any project i mean when i did the 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 this lorena bobbitt uh documentary series a few years ago I think like there's this weird thing where it's like, okay, like we know the story. I've seen these episodes a number of times. And I think I really underestimated how much just the the cruelty and violence of of that story got to me. And I I really was like, you know, I was struggled a lot, you know, I struggled a lot. And I don't think I quite, I think that was a situation where I, again, I probably felt like I could maybe just dip in and do this more intellectually, but again, it got to me. I mean, again, the, the story just really started to affect me in a way that I just didn't predict because again, I thought I knew the story pretty well, having grown up in the States and that was a big thing. And you know what I mean? I imagine the end result is better as a result of that though, possibly. I think so. I mean, I think it's like also important to, to know when I, I you know, it's, it's a fine line because I know that there are some artists who have to sort of put so much into any project, you know, to the point that they actually, they take a hit, you know, 
they take like an emotional hit and sometimes that like that's hard and like it's not always sustainable so i think like again i don't know how to i don't have like a i don't have like a philosophy about this i don't have like a how-to but i mean i think it's important to check in with yourself probably and know like when you're maybe like when when your connection to the material is helping you versus when it's actually just causing you pain you know that's a that's a good sort of delineation only and only like the only you know you as the feeler can know that <laughs> and sometimes you don't know till you're already till the till the cream's already boiling you know and maybe you need to hop out and go for a walk or go look at some kittens or something you know like watch youtube videos or something <laughs> of animals it does it feel different when you get back into it after that if you take a little bit of time away just to recalibrate when you eventually go back to working on it how does it kind of change oh absolutely i mean I mean, a situation like that, it's more just like, it's almost like just taking a mental health minute that like, if you're in, if you're in, if you're dealing with heavy subject matter, like you need to just check in and know that like your work at a certain point, like, you know, like, like fully like empathizing and empathy is good. But if you empathize with the people in maybe if it's a documentary or a movie so much that you're actually like, you're, you're depressed or you're having pain, you're probably not doing your best work. I would say you're probably not. I think there's a, again, there's a point. So I think when you step away, you just get a little bit of perspective on whether your problems are your own or whether you've sort of taken on the feelings of this project, you know, again, especially when it's like something that's emotional or heavy, you know? Can that sometimes be difficult to distinguish what's your own and what's coming from the project? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've had a lot of therapy, so, and I have like a very like emotionally aware partner in my life you know that i think is very receptive to helping me in those moments so we help each other you know to try to understand like am i really upset or am i just do i just need to like take a little do i need to take the rest of the day off from this project you know to kind of again get some perspective because maybe maybe it is my feelings and maybe it isn't you know you just need sometimes you just need help with that you know how was that for you then when you were both working on the episode of room 104 together and writing the episode together well, like we're, we write really well together. Like, I think that like we are, our, our talents seem to complement one another really well. And I mean, both of the episodes of Room 104 that, that Janae and I wrote together, we were, were really, I don't say they were easy, but they flowed really well. Like it just kind of happened. You know what I mean? And like, I mean, when we wrote this one episode that was very, very connected to like our childhood and emotions and stuff, and we cried a lot together writing it, but I think that's was usually telling us that we were onto something good. Like if it made us cry while we were writing it, it probably meant that we were touching on something that, that maybe more people would connect to, that maybe we hit something universal or more universal than just our personal experience. Yeah, kind of using your emotions as a compass to guide you through it. Yeah, yeah, we did do that. I mean, I think like, again, not we didn't necessarily intellectualize it so much. But we did like, I think like we were when we got to that point during the writing, we're like, okay, this is this is this is good. We're on the right track here. This is true. You know, this is good. Is it a different process when you're working on it with someone like that, who you have this pre existing chemistry with? too? Absolutely. I mean, I think that I don't know how I don't think you can really compare you know, writing with somebody that you're like, you know, making a life with is, is because I mean, I've written with, I've, I mean, I, I've collaborated with other people and written, I've written with Mark a lot and that's just a totally different thing, you know? So yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's something, there's something special to that for sure. Does the collaboration differ when you do it 
repeated times? Uh, I don't know if I've done it enough to really, but to know, to be able to answer that really confidently. But I think in general, yeah, like, I mean, I've had the, I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of directors multiple times, and it's been really cool to see how our collaboration grows. Um, you know, cause it's always, it's like, you learn, you know, you go off and you do other projects and you learn some new tricks, you learn some new ways of being, and then you can kind of come back and apply those. I and mean, that's really cool. I mean, certainly like being a composer again, after having written and directed, it's a whole other, it's a whole other experience. It's very different. It feels very different. Are you thinking about it more in the context of how your role fits into the wider film after kind of being the overseer? I mean, I've always been pretty aware of that, but certainly, yeah, I think you're right. But like, you really do, you know, like being alone as the composer, you really can get in your head about like what you're doing and not to say that what you're doing isn't important, but like when you don't have, when you're not seeing the the huge machine of a movie or a show, you do get sort of a different view of it. So having had that view of seeing like how much it took the pre-production and the meetings and the shooting and and all the things that have to happen before you get to score it, you're like, it, it really is kind of, it's humbling in a really good way. Maybe nice to be shielded from that some of the time as well, though. Probably. Yeah. I mean, I think like musicians tend to like want to feel like they're making a difference, you know? And I think, you know, the cliches that like musicians like really, (laughs) you know, musicians tend to like hear these things about their music that's going into a movie that maybe like they think are really important, but really maybe aren't important. You know, I've certainly had that being like, oh, this one part, this is so key. This is so great. And I love it. And then the reality is, is that like, you're not making an album, you know, and when it gets mixed, it's going to get mixed at an appropriate, unless you're working on like a Chris Nolan movie, I guess, um, you know, you're going to, it's going to be mixed at like an appropriate volume that, that like is probably not going to show off every single special detail of your music that you crafted from <laughs> the ground up, you know? And I think that's, that's a very helpful thing to remember that like the, you know, the music really should, it should communicate without having to be at like a loud volume. And if it has to be at a loud volume to be able to be communicated, then it might be served better being in a different medium, like on an album or something rather than in the movie, you know? Yeah. You're almost trying to communicate in a subconscious way more. So you're kind of in the background a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say you have to paint in broader strokes, but like there are certain intricacies, especially like as like a, you know, someone that's passionate about ambient electronic music, there are subtleties that like, frankly, it just, it won't, you know, once it's sort of like a certain at the correct decibel, it, it might be very, it might not sound like you intended it. To, not so much. It won't sound like you intended it to sound, but it's just going to be something else. It's going to sound different to you. And I know that's been a very helpful thing to remember that like there's certain sounds that really cut through and really make your point. And there's other stuff that like, it's fun to do and it's, it's enriching to like engage in that kind of electronic filter sweeps or these things. But then like at the end of the day, like with the sound effects and the dialogue and the mix, it's like not going to translate, you know, I think actors probably go through this too with certain like reactions or, you know, like that, like something that feels like you're moving mountains within maybe doesn't quite, it doesn't translate the same to the camera. And that's a skill to figure out how to, make everybody know that you're moving mountains and i guess i'm still i'm always figuring that out musically like what what gets it across you know yeah kind of ties into what you were saying earlier as well a little bit but how there are certain tricks that you're kind of aware of that you know you can use to get things into a certain spot and evoke certain emotions in people do do you ever have to kind of exercise restraint to not use them all the time and avoid yourself kind of slipping into patterns to keep (laughs) it fresh 
Yeah. I mean, like sometimes I do like, you know, I think there probably was at least one episode of room 104 that I remember looking at when they sent it to me. And like, I genuinely forgot if they, they had, I, there was a piece of music and I'm like, this sounds familiar. I don't remember if I made it or not, you know, like, I don't know if this is the piece of music I made, or if this is the temp music that maybe inspired me to make it. That probably points to like, yeah, like if you've got your tricks sometimes, or, or, you know, sometimes when I'm like, when my agent asked me to put like a little reel together for like a project is to give them an idea of what I, you know, what I'm capable of or whatever, I'll be like going through being like, Oh, I really, I have like my move. Don't I, I have that one. <laughs> I have like that one portal move that like, I really like to do, you know, that's kind of like a thing I like to do. And I don't think that's a bad thing. It's just a little bit of like reflection on like, um, yeah, I think like trying to learn some new tricks, you know? I mean, I remember there was this one time that I like, I got really like emotional and I tried to learn how to play um, David Bowie's uh, one of his, you know, off his second to last record, uh, the song, where are we now off the next day. And like, that's a really cool composition. And I learned how to play it. And I learned a lot of new tricks from that in terms of like some certain choral moves that were really satisfying on a keyboard instrument. And, uh, and, you know, I've probably like leaned on those a bit much lately. So maybe it's time to learn another David Bowie song that I can uh, like learn some tricks that I can now play some tricks out, you know? Head back to the Berlin years. Yeah, no, I mean, I probably, you know, it's funny. I mean, like, I think I'm on to, I don't even know what brain I'm on. I mean, like, I think my, 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 my tiny brain was like low is my favorite Bowie album, but I'm, I'm well past the expanding galaxy Bowie brain at this point. I'm like, my David Bowie fandom is like gone to a place that I, you know, I don't recommend, you know, everyone go there. (laughs) You know, me and me and my friends, like during the pandemic, during quarantine, especially early, we like created essentially like, you, you mean, I don't know, do you know, you know what a, like a sports bracket is? I mean, you, you must, I guess most people know. I just didn't know how esoteric like a sports bracket is in general, but we essentially like created a ranking system for every guitar player that worked with David Bowie. And then we sort of inserted them into this like tournament style bracket. And we sort of like would vote on who like, you know, we'd try to figure out what their signature song is and then vote. Uh, so we, you know, we did this whole sort of tournament to dis- to, to determine, you know, the, the pecking order, like who were his best guitar players. Did you notice patterns in that, like what we were just saying there with each guitar player? Did you notice that they had some tricks? Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, they definitely have their tricks. I mean, it definitely was a really wonderful, um, ex- wonderful way to sort of appreciate an aspect of Bowie, you know, because Bowie is always at the center of Bowie's music, you know, and like, uh, there's always guitar, but like, it really made me appreciate like certain traits, you know, the fact that like Mick Ronson, it was such a master of dynamics. Like he actually, there's a lot of times where he's not playing, you know, he's like not playing. And so when he does play, it's all the more powerful, you know, especially on, on Ziggy, like there'll be sort of, I mean, he's probably playing acoustic guitar, but he like saves, he arranges it so that he saves the electric guitar. So it really comes in and it's like really powerful. You know, and like Earl Slick has such an amazing feel. He kind of is just jamming the whole time, but he's doing stuff. I don't know. And Alamo, I mean, I could talk for like much too long about this, but yes, the point is that I started, yeah, we, we, I think we all started to note what these guys' tricks were, you know, because everyone's got them. Yeah. I guess it's the same in any creative pursuit though, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You have your, you have your thing, but I mean, it's good to keep growing. Yeah. It's like when I'm doing this as well, I know that there's certain questions that I can ask that are gonna get a good answer but you don't want to use the same ones all the time because it just gets a little bit sure you know well i don't know if you've got good ones you might as well because everyone will answer them different right that's the temptation i hope they do 
Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, that's what James Lipton had, right? Yeah. Or I guess it wasn't his invention. Well, I've, I forget. I've stolen from that as well. Yeah. The prose questionnaire. Exactly. Exactly. That, you know, it's just, and that, that's, I mean, it is fun to hear how different people answer the same questions, but, uh, but no, I like the way you, you ask really good questions. I really, I really, uh, I like uh, very good prompts. Oh, thank you. Have you, have you, uh, seen boys? answers to the prose questionnaire i don't think i have actually i should really lo- i should i should familiarize myself with those check them out they're pretty good Anything. he kind of takes the piss a little bit oh but. well of course he was so funny <laughs> i think that's the thing that like i mean we you know i don't know if you've ever heard like the this one of my favorite things in the wake of his demise was uh that the little piece of audio that was him like making up these like kind of bruce springsteen-esque lyrics to like the instrumental of absolute beginner <laughs> and like he's doing like the bruce springsteen version of it and then he does like the tom waits version and the bolin version and the newly version and he's so funny like he's such a good mimic and he's so hilarious like kind of getting to the core of all these different singers he, he was so funny it just comes back to or that ricky gervais bit <laughs> or an extras in extras, yeah, pathetic little loser, <laughs> sad little fat man. It's just like kind of to the, it's almost to the, it's like kind of the, to the tune of Little Wonder, which I thought was funny. Yeah, just to, kind of just on the peripheries of it. <laughs> exactly. It's interesting what we're what we're kind of just speaking about, you know, with freshness and finding new tricks. Is there a difference when you get a new instrument and you first start writing on it? compared to when you know it back to front yeah definitely i mean like uh my bandmate like once said that like you know every he felt like every guitar had like a certain amount of songs in it you know and so he was really into like trading guitars sometime but yeah i mean i think that like uh, yeah i'm not much it's i'm not much of a keyboard player you know i like like i think sometimes people think i can sit down at the piano and play something pleasing which is far from the truth so i think that like i really do connect to the instrument so the layout how many keys there are, what the keys feel like, you know, how many, not, what are the, where are the knobs? Like it definitely influences like what I'll do with it, you know? So, so yeah, I really like, I mean, I definitely think that that's one of the, pre- that's one, that's something I actually hate about music, or at least my relationship to music is that I always want new things and I've amassed so many things. And sometimes I really hate having so many things. It seems preposterous that it takes so many things to make music, you know? You're a big record collector as well, aren't you? I am. Yeah. I'm yeah. I like those things. I think, I mean, look, like I, the, the reason I collect records is it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's really a preference. It's just a preference. And it has to do with the fact that like, if your investment in a, in an album or in a song is that you subscribe to Spotify or Apple and you search it and you play it, you know, I think like it's, it's a very small investment. And I think it cheat. I don't, I'm not, I'm not even talking about the monetary value of music for the maker of the music. I'm talking about the value of music that you have like put into it, you know? And I find that like, I like buying a record and having the record and shelving the record and getting the record out. And just that whole commitment, you know, so by the time I put it on the, on the turntable, like I'm going to listen to the whole side, at least probably I'll flip it and listen to the whole record, you know, but I do think that in this sort of era where like the attention span is shorter than ever, I just personally, and this is no judgment. I just, for me personally, I don't like having that kind of relationship to music where I can just like search any song because I find that like, I tend not to listen to the whole song, you know, I'll listen to the bit I like, and then I'll move on to something else. And versus like, once you've dropped the needle, 
you might as well listen to the whole thing because you're going to have to re-sleeve it and refile it and all that, you know? So I like that. That's why I like it, you know? It kind of it makes me think about the new, you know, Riley record is what we were speaking about at the start, where he's almost created something that you're not just going to listen to a little bit of. And one of the, that's yes. going to hook you in for the whole thing, if you know what I mean, because it's a constant flow. I totally agree. I mean, like, well, I mean, those are all my favorite albums, you know? The ones that kind of hook you in or encourage you, encourage you to go on a journey with the whole thing. Do you think Room 104 kind of ties into that attention span thing a little bit in the sense that every episode is almost like a short film as opposed to this? Because it, it's not really, I don't know, like a 20-hour a commitment or whatever. It's, it feels more like yeah. lots of little commitments as opposed to tying yourself into these characters for a whole span of time you know well it certainly helps in getting like friends and family to like agree to watch the episodes that, that i've worked on because i always can tell them hey hey you don't have to watch the whole scene no you don't have to watch the whole series no it's okay if you haven't seen any other episodes you know and so that's uh that's good how often do they go back to the start anyway though uh you know you'd have to ask them you'd have to ask them i'm not sure i you know i'm not sure hopefully i mean you know, it's, I guess like it's one of those things where there's like something for everyone. And I guess like what, what it's almost like, I guess if I had to compare it to like a musical thing, I would say like, I, I know that like we, especially in the season four, which I was, you know, got to be a creative part of the whole season from Genesis to Revelation, is that like, I noticed that like Mark and Sid and Mel, they like to like uh, sequence, you know, they, we shoot the episodes in whatever order, but that's not the order they're going to air. And then there's a sort of sequencing time, like you're making a mixtape or something, you know? And so in a way it's like making a mixtape. It's also like making, I don't know. I mean, I like compilations, you know, like you get like nuggets or something like that. That's just like a collection of all these things that fit together, but aren't made by the same person, but they make sense because they're all garage rock or they're all weird psychedelic things, you know? So I think that, um, to me, that's a little bit what room one, what a room one hundred four season is like, like a really good compilation of like stuff that that fits together, you know. Um, even if it's not all, you know, you're not getting the same, the same tone, even or the same genre. So I guess it's more like a mixtape in that regard, because nuggets would probably all be the same genre. That's when you notice different things about each episode, though, isn't it? When you kind of contextualize them in that way. Yeah, no, I've really enjoyed watching people sort of like uh, think about that, you know. Because, I mean, it's funny because there are sort of, like, this is a really funny thing, actually, that, that Mel noticed. That, like, when I was, like, posting on social media about the episodes of Room 104 as they would air, you know, the ones that either I wrote or co-wrote or directed, you know, I didn't realize this. She pointed this out after, like, four straight weeks that, like, when I had posted about it, I'd begun everything I said of when I was a kid. And I, I, that was not something I did on purpose, but it just so happened that, like, everything I put into this season personally was really connected to my, my youth, you know, and maybe there's something universal about that, but it's like with the, with the last man, which was the sword fighting, the, the, the immortal, the sort of Highlander type sword fighting thing that we did with, uh, that Mark wrote, you know, I like was obsessed. The queen was my favorite band when I was a kid, you know, and I would love the Highlander movies and I would like make Highlander movies like by myself, you know, I had like a plastic sword and I would like, you know, I would like, do there can be only one and do all that stuff you know and then obviously <laughs> the night babby died that i wrote with janae like i mean i was a i was a huge gamer as a kid and it was like i mean i still am a huge gamer i'm not gonna lie but like that was important to me you know and that was like some of my really special memories so anyway the point being that like all of a sudden i realized like wow like <laughs> there's this real through line of them like reaching back and then that was not conscious i mean that was not something that i've been like oh i'm really gonna think about 
thematically tying all these things together. It just kind of happened. I really, I really did like, and that did a number on me when Mel pointed that out. She thought it was so funny, and as as did I. <laughs> Is that kind of the same with the score as well? Like you'll write the whole thing, and then suddenly you look back, and it's become cohesive, just a, a kind of natural thing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. That that definitely happens. I mean, sometimes I worry again that that's like a function of like how like I'm um, the hack and I have only so many tricks, but uh, I don't know. I think there, there just ends up being a cohesion anyway. Outside of directing and writing and kind of exploring these new avenues of create uh-huh. of, of creativity, does your creativity still surprise you and kind of reveal new things to you even this far into your career? Yeah, that's the, yeah, definitely. That's the best. I really enjoy when that happens. I don't know. I mean, there's so much I don't know. And like, uh, I all of a sudden realize something and, and it is, there's a joy to that, you know, even like when I just sort of stumble into like a chord progress, I'm just like plonking around and I stumble into a chord progression that's familiar. And all of a sudden now I understand why I like a Steely Dan song or something. And I can learn something from that. I mean, I'm surprised all the time. I think it's, that's really good to be surprised. It's the joy of life. It is, right? It really is. <laughs> the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.